Welcome to In Your Shoes. I'm Mauro Porcini and I'm PepsiCo's Chief Design Officer. And this episode of In Your Shoes today is pretty unique. I don't have a guest and I'm essentially interviewing myself about the topics of a book that I just released. The title is The Human Side of Innovation, The Power of People in Love with People. And I want to share with you today what the book is about, why it's somehow unique in its content, why I decided to even write a book, and while digging into some of the themes and the topics, we'll touch on the idea of human centricity and the need of businesses and companies and brands to refocus everything they do around the idea of the human being, of people, of creating value for them. We'll talk about the leaders and the innovators and the change agents of the world, how they think, how they behave, what drives them, why they are so important in this world. We'll talk about how to find them, how to train them, the mentors that they need to identify and they need to work with. And finally, we'll try to elevate all of these ideas uh, beyond the world of business and the world of work uh, to the life of all of us. Uh, I close the book talking about how you can design eventually your own happiness and what are the steps that you need to take to do something like this. So let's start with the reason why I decided to, to write a book. I'm a designer, I'm an executive in a big multinational corporation. Why to write a book? Well, it's been a passion of mine since I was a child. Uh, I, as a, as a kid, I wanted to do a couple of things in life. One was to be a writer. I was in love with the world of literature and philosophy, and I loved reading and I loved a lot writing. The other passion that I had was the one of becoming an artist. Uh, I, I loved to paint, to draw, to sketch, uh, and both things, writing and uh, drawing were coming natural to me and I was pretty good at doing, uh, at doing them. And so it was my passion. I wanted to be an artist. I wanted to be a writer. I ended up becoming a designer. Uh, completely by coincidence in the book, I talk about uh, what happened in my life that somehow changed the trajectory of my initial dreams. What happened uh, the day that I got completely out of my comfort zone, I decided to do something that will change that trajectory. I decided to jump in a void, have a leap of faith. And, and by doing that, I discovered something called design and the uni you know, university of design um, that I didn't even know it exists. I didn't know what design was, how it would connect with the world of innovation, how it would connect with the world of businesses and brands. I just had no idea, but I decided to take a leap and, and just try. And, and for a variety of different reasons, and once again, you can find the book. And that made me discover a world that I totally fell in love with. That is the world of design, the world of uh, human-centered innovation, the world of creating uh, value for people through the products, the, the brands, the experiences, the services that we imagine 
we take to life through our com- companies and uh, organizations of any kind, depending on what kind of designer you are. I started this journey um, inspired by my family, by my uh, parents. Uh, my mother uh, was working in finance, but essentially she couldn't go to college. Uh, she, they didn't have the money, her family didn't have the money to send her to college. And she um, went straight to work in this world, and, but, but she didn't like it at all. She didn't like finance at all. She left when she was 38 to stay close to her kids. Uh, with the decision was not easy. We were coming from a humble family. We would sleep, the four of us, my brother, me, and, and my parents in one room, in one bedroom. Um, but my mother decided to leave something that she didn't love, she was not passionate about, to, to do what she really loved. And one dimension of this was to be close to her children and grow them up and educate them and, and really be on top uh, of uh, their, their growth and, and, and education. And the other passion that she had was writing. And, and, and she would write everyday poems and, and uh, all kinds of thoughts. And still today, in, in her 80s, almost 80s, she's doing it every single day. My father uh, was an architect. Uh, and a professor uh, in high school of technical drawing. But his passion was also, in his case, uh, different. He loved art and he would draw and paint every day with all kinds of techniques. And I would be there witnessing this and try these things with him. And, and it was just fascinating. And I realized today, many years later, what it meant for me. I witness every single day two people, two human beings that just follow their passions. They were at something that they really, really loved and they practice it every day, no matter the circumstances, no matter their day job or no matter, uh, in the case of my mother, it was difficult. It's been difficult to leave that day job to go after what she loved, but she did. They, all, they always did it. And at a certain point in their life, you know, they were doing it for themselves. At a certain point, internet arrived and they, they were always zero technological. I mean, still today, my mom doesn't have essentially a smartphone. She still uses a very, very old kind of phone. Just to give you an idea of what kind of person she is. But no matter this, they figure out how to build a blog at the very beginning of the internet world when social media were not yet a mass market uh, phenomenon, they built a blog. And in the, this blog, my mom, she would share with the world every day uh, her thinking, her thoughts, her poems, sentences, ideas. And my father sketches and drawings and sometimes some photography. And later on, they self-published, they started to self-publish books again, with poems and drawings. And today, after a few years, they have eight books that they self-publish just for themselves. They don't care at all about selling a copy of those. It's just for them, for their families and friends, and for anybody interested to um, access their thinking, their art, their creativity. So here I am, inspired by the kind of... 
extreme love for what you do and that extreme creativity. And I think somehow it's been a unique trait of uh, my journey, similar to the one, by the way, of my brother, Stefano, designer himself as well, that is in his own way, has been doing in his life these kind of things. So I'm mentioning all of this because I think, you know, partially because you may understand a little bit more about this book and other things that eventually, you know, I do like this post podcast as an example and a variety of other things, if you know me a little, uh, but also because essentially the role of education, the role of your background and your family and what it means uh, to you and your journey is very important. And today as a father with a five months old um, daughter, I think about this every day. How can I become the role model or how can I embody certain behaviors that I think are good for my daughters, for my daughter is something that obviously I think about every day. Two other things that were really important in the education I received from my parents um, were the key values that they share with us, with their children every single day. Sometimes by talking about that, but the most of the times was through example, by embodying those kind of behaviors. The first one was the idea of culture. For them, the most important thing in life, together with the other principle that I'm about to share with you, was the idea of knowing things, knowledge, culture. And again, they wouldn't be there all the time telling us, oh, you need to have culture, you need to read books, you need to document yourself. No, no. It was their aspiration. I would observe them doing this, reading books and be ecstatic about people that had a lot of culture and would know how to communicate about this and storytell all of this. They were like, wow. So they were not putting pressure on me and my brother to do it. They were just embodying that idea in themselves. And then they were in full admiration for those kind of people. They were not in admiration for people who were rich or famous or wealthy. No, no, no. For them, it was culture. The second thing was being a good human being, being kind, being nice to others. In their world, that was translated in their Catholics' uh, beliefs. But then later on in life, I realized that obviously this transcends any kind of faith uh, or lack of faith. Uh, these, these are values that are universal. The idea of being a good human being to others. They grew me up with that idea, with that kind of value, with those kind of values. And so I'm mentioning this once again, because if you'll end up reading this book, you will find this idea of love and passion for what you do, of creative expression, uh, proactivity in everything you do on one side. And then this idea of culture and knowledge and learning and being always hungry for learning more and more and more and seeing your life as an opportunity for continuous uh, growth and learning. And then finally, this idea of being good, being a good human being to others, being kind, you will find these three elements in every page of the book, everywhere. Even though it's a book about business, innovation, design, somehow, you know, there's a little bit of mem a memoir inside a variety of different areas of the book, uh, but, but you will find these common elements everywhere in this book. The other thing that is interesting, I think, uh, is that 
while I got this kind of exposure to this kind of values early on in life, I became fully aware of the superpower of this kind of values very recently, in the past 10 years. And so for many years, I was navigating blind, blind, um, following my instinct and following something that was imprinted in me early on, but without the awareness of uh, the power of this kind of values and a variety of others that I discovered in life. And so in the book, I talk also about a certain point about the value of education, education that can build awareness about some values that you may have inside yourself, but you're not leveraging yet strategically or you're not leveraging at all sometimes. Confusing, for instance, kindness as a weakness instead of a superpower. Um, and then obviously the importance of training and maintaining those values once you realize you have them, those kind of skills, those kind of attributes, those kind of behaviors and ways of thinking. Uh, so what is this book about? Well, essentially, it's a book about innovation, as I say. And if I need to find a way to synthesize all the themes uh, spread across uh, all the pages of the, of the tome, I would say that the key word is human centricity. Human centricity that, by the way, uh, you find back right away in the title, in the subtitle, the human side of innovation, the power of people in love with people. We'll talk about the subtitle uh, soon, uh, but let's start from this idea of human centricity. First of all, I'm not calling it consumer centricity. I'm calling it human centricity. And there is a profound difference between the two words. And, and words are very powerful to shape culture, their manifestation of culture or their wonderful tools to push culture in a certain direction. So as a designer, a school, uh, you will never call the people you are designing for consumers. <laughs> Eventually we're called, we're calling them users, utenti in Italian. Most of the time we're calling them people, human beings. So when you look at somebody as a consumer, what do you do? What, do you do? what are you doing? What do you think directly, immediately? Well, first of all, you look at them as somebody you want to sell stuff to. You know, the, the consumer is the person that buy your products, your brands. So you are reducing the human being to the dimension of somebody buying stuff. The second thing we're doing is that we're focusing on this idea that is so anachronistic of consuming, people consuming in a world where one of the biggest problems that we have is the lack of resources, the scarcity of resources. So we should think of people that reuse, that recycle, that don't just consume and consume and consume and you want them to consume even more. And so we should change the way we address these human beings, these people. If you look at people as consumers, you will do as a, you know, and you are a designer, you are a marketer, you are an entrepreneur, you are an innovator, you are a CEO, you are a business leader. What do you do? You will do everything you can with all the levers that you have, with your products and brands 
to sell the person something. If you look at people as users, you will think about the moment they use these products, not just when they buy them. So at least you will try to figure out how to satisfy them, how to create something that is uh, useful and desirable. And this is very important because you will do that before thinking about selling them stuff. You will first do that. You will focus on creating value for them. That will be your focus. And then obviously you want to sell them, you know, the product as well. It's very important for a variety of different reasons, even just for the fact that if even if you're creating something just for the good of the world, because you really want to add value to the life of people out there, the more you sell whatever product you create, the more good you're doing to the world because it's going to be diffused all around the world and accessible to as many people as possible. So even the commercial dimension for the purist designers and entrepreneurs that just want to do good is an important dimension because it's a manifestation or eventually is a platform to assess as many people as possible. So that's the user. But if you think of people as just people, not consumers, not users, people, human beings, then you take it even to the next level. What drives you is this idea of creating real value for them in their lives. You're looking at your products, your brands, your resources to touch their lives as a way to create value, positive value in their lives. You know, as designers, entrepreneurs, marketers, leaders of companies, big and small, we touch the life of people every single day. Everything that surrounds us, everything, unless it's designed by Mother Nature, was designed by somebody, by a human being, by a person. And so imagine if we're all driven, all of us entrepreneurs of the world, we're all driven by creating positive value in the life of people. When you touch the life of people with your product, you think, okay, I'm going to add value to their life. I'm going to add convenience or safety or style or fun or all of them together and much more. You know, always driven by creating value. Well, your product at that point will be a fragment, a fragment of many, many, many other fragments that are all the products out there in the world that collectively, if designed with purpose, in the right way, thinking about value for people and for society and for the world, we'll have the power of creating a better world, of creating a better society. We have this power in our hands because society, you know, because nature was good already by itself. Mother Nature designed something wonderful out there. You know, we invented the idea of ugly, of bad, or something that is not good for us as human beings. So it's on us, it's our responsibility, and it's in our power, if we're driven by the right purpose, to rethink everything we're designing. And we have the possibility, the unbelievable possibility, to really create something positive in the, in the world by doing that. So that's the... Uh, starting principle, the one of creating value for people. And once again, words are powerful. Let's call people for what they are, human beings. The consumer is a component of it. The user is another component. But what should drive us is creating value and ultimately 
happiness in the life of these human beings. Now, this book talks about this and everything I told you so far, you may think, wow, yeah, you know, this beautiful, bravo, you know, you wrote a book about this, but maybe it's a little bit idealistic. Uh, is it real? Uh, why are you writing about this? Can you really practice this? Does it make sense in the world we live in? They look so different than what you are describing, this idea of happiness. Are you sure? Well, I am. And this vision is very practical. It may sound really, you know, idealistic, but it's really, really, really practical. And it's based on something that is going on out there. Everything, you know, I usually talk about everything that is in this book or in my speeches in conferences, or even if you heard me talking with our incredible guest in this podcast, podcasting in your shoes, you heard me often talking about this point, you know, about human centricity, about sustainability, about creating a better world. And all of this is coming from my practice in these corporations. For the past 10 years in PepsiCo, before in 3M, in Philips, with my own company. Uh, so it's very practical. And what is the observation, you know, that everything comes from, you know, the, 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 the starting point of everything? Well, it's the fact that today, the world is very different than 20, 30 years ago. There are a variety of different things happening out there. First of all, anybody, any person listening to me right now has the power today of come up with an idea and get access to funding for that idea, to money, resources, to make that idea come to life in a much easier way than in the past through platforms like kickstarter.com, as an example, or through the proliferation of investment funds and organizations hunting for the next big idea. We live in the age of the startup. So for anybody, you know, coming up with an idea and thinking, oh, I could be the startup, is more plausible today than it was 30 years ago. There are very, there are less people they will take you for crazy when you have that idea than in the past. And actually, if you think about many uh, young adults getting out of school today, for many of them, the dream is not to join a big company and an established brand. The dream, in many cases, is the one of building your own big company or future big company through your startup. So it's pretty common today to think you can build something great by yourself and it's easier, therefore, to get access to funding people that is willing to invest in your idea. The cost of manufacturing that idea is decreasing, driven by globalization and international competition and driven by new technologies. Many of them are making possible to start your production of your new idea without having the big scale that you needed in the past. And so this is making possible to uh, ignite your startup, to start uh, testing and prototyping your ideas in a commercial environment in a much easier way. And then you can go straight to people, as we call them until now, to the end user, to the people using your products, um, through the digital platforms, through e-commerce, to sell them your product, and through social media, to 
build an ecosystem of communication around the product and the brand. Well, I just mentioned all the different areas where the big companies used to build their barriers to entry, made of scale, of production, of distribution, and of communication. Today, those barriers are crumbling under uh, the power of this new world we're living in, global, digital, high-tech, with all the characteristics that I just described. And so the big and the small are left with just one option. We all know that there are millions of people out there today thinking about how to enter the beverage category, the food category, the cleaning tools category, even the automotive category, you know, even categories that are much more complex to enter because the barriers, even if they're not as strong as they used to be, are for sure higher than in other industries. There are people that are thinking, how can I enter? And what do they do? It's pretty simple. They think about the relation between the existing products and the people out there, the users, consumers, customers, whatever you want to call them, the people using these products. And they think about their needs, their wants, their dreams and their frustrations, what is working and what is not working, what they know and what eventually they don't even know, they don't even expect, because often it's the role of us, companies, designers, brands, entrepreneurs, to think about something that the people out there didn't think about yet. This is our role, to propose them something, gift them with something that is totally unexpected, that is a gift of love. I called innovation at the beginning of the book, an act of love. You want to surprise these people. You want to create something magic, unexpected. You don't want to just satisfy them. Would you want, you know, if you think about people, human beings, not consumers, people as your kids, your parents, your significant others, your friends, are you happy with just satisfying them or you want to love them? What is the difference between the two words? Satisfaction is all about fulfilling a specific need. You identify the need and then you create a solution for that need. But when you love somebody, you know, your family members, as an example, you try to do more. You try to do the unexpected, the magic. You want them to be surprised by the magic of what you can do for them. And this is the real drive of the real innovator. The idea that you're not there to, for consumer satisfaction or customer satisfaction. You're there with people loving with a deep love for the human being that drives you to do something that is always above and beyond what is expected in the world. And so this is what uh, drives uh, you know, uh, people today. And this is what is happening out there. Essentially, either you create something extraordinary for people with your company, big or small, or somebody else will do it for you. Well, in the past, some of these companies could eventually protect some form of mediocrity, you know, in the products because that was the standard of the industry, for instance. Today, that's not possible anymore because no matter if you, your competitor and the other competitor are doing similar things, there is space for others to enter and disrupt you. This is what happened with Uber and the transportation industry. This is what happened with... uh, the Airbnb of my friend Joe Gebbia, uh, that was a guest in this podcast uh, a few months ago, and his Airbnb. So 
what is the Uber and the Airbnb of your industry? And is going to come from a competitor or is going to be driven by you? And you're going to disrupt your own industry in the name of creating something extraordinary for people. You may have the best product, the best brand, and but maybe the service is not amazing. That's where competition will come. You may have the best product, the best brand, the best service, but maybe your proposition is not sustainable enough. It's not purposeful enough. And that's where competition will come. You need it all today. It's enough one area of weakness, and this is where competition will come. And this is extraordinary. Think about the implication for the world we live in. It means that we are going to create products and brands that are extraordinary for people. It means that we, people of the world, people there, out there in the society, we start to finally be, be bombarded by extraordinary products. I call this age the age of excellence, where either you create excellence through your products and brands and services and experiences, or somebody else will do it on your behalf. There is no space anymore for mediocrity. There is no possibility to protect any form of mediocrity anymore with your barriers to entry. And even if it's still happening in some industries and categories, obviously we witness this every day, it's just a matter of time. And progressively, things will change for the better. And this is already a, such a beautiful optimistic message about the future of this world. You know, in a moment of inflation and recession and wars, and, you know, we are so bombarded by uh, a lot of negativity. The reality is that the world is somehow slowly, incrementally and progressively moving in a better direction. And it's up to us, people of the world, Entrepreneurs, brand leaders, marketers, R&D uh, leaders, researchers, designers, uh, in any kind of company, big and small, in institution of any kind, is up to us to drive something like this, to keep in mind this idea of loving people and translating that in everything we do through our products, brands, businesses, and companies. This is the first point of the book. The world is changing, therefore you need to have this human centricity in everything you do. And some of the tools that I offer in the book are the tools typical of the design world. Uh, this idea of design thinking is for sure something very powerful to drive that kind of approach. Design thinking as defi defined as this connection between desirability, feasibility, and viability, between focusing on what people need and want and taking that as the priority number one, putting it at the center of everything, and then figuring out in parallel how to make it feasible, possible on the world of technology, and then how to make it viable, how to build a business out of it. This is what designers study at school. If you go to design school, like for instance, in my case, I went to the Polytechnic University of Milan, and for five years, you study the world of marketing, business, branding, and that's viability. You study the world of technology, material science, mathematics, physics, chemistry, uh, and a variety of other uh, technologies, more and more, more recently, the digital technologies. And then you study 
the world of uh, the human beings. Uh, that, and in other words, uh, human science, semiotic, anthropology, you learn to be an ethnographer, an observer, somebody that understands people. This is what you study in those schools with books pretty high, with teachers often coming from other schools, the schools of business and the schools of technology and a variety of different schools of technology. This is a big cluster. Uh, you study all these different dimensions and then every year you do a series of projects with companies out there to connect the dots amongst the different dimensions. The problem is that we designers, we call those projects design projects. I learned later on when I started to join the workforce and the world of business that companies out there call these projects innovation projects. And we designers, we get lost in translation. We are the only people with this specific kind of education, combining the three dimensions together. If you study business, you don't study the world of technology. If you study technology, probably you don't study the world of human beings. If you study design, they teach you to be a facilitator, a glue, a connector amongst these three, these three different dimensions without being expert of a specific dimension, but becoming, again, a translator of different languages, talking different languages and connecting them together. This is what we do. We are transversal inside these organizations and we connect the dots amongst different kind of uh, more vertical kind of functions. Uh, and all around the idea of human centricity, of focusing on people becoming ambassadors of the human beings, as I like to call the designers and design thinkers of the world. So this is one tool that I offer, you know, in the book as a way to drive human-centered innovation. Design thinking can be also explained in a different way. Design thinking leads at the crossroad between empathy, strategy, and prototyping. Empathy is the ability as an ethnographer to understand what is relevant to people. Strategy is the ability at that point to understand what is relevant to your company. Understanding, you know, maybe one product proposition and it's, it's makes a lot of sense for people. And then trying to figure out if the kind of proposition, for instance, a premium beverage uh, or... Uh, a, a new uh, technology in the automotive world, if that kind of new product, for instance, makes sense also for your company, is relevant to your company. Uh, from a business model standpoint, do I have the right distribution, as an example? From a culture standpoint, do my sales organization has the right culture to sell something so different than what they've been selling for the past 100 years? And then, from a process standpoint, do I have the technologies to produce it in an efficient and effective way with my current investments? Uh, if you don't have all these three dimensions, it doesn't mean you shouldn't do that project. But then you need to realize right away that your project is not just a product innovation project, but it's an innovation of culture, of business model, and processes. And you should be clear, crystal clear from the very beginning that that's uh, your kind of project, else you risk to, wa to waste completely months or years and investment and time of people going after something that doesn't make sense for your company. It's relevant to people, but it's not relevant to your company. Now, the third dimension, empathy and strategy, what is the third dimension is, is the ability to prototype. And this is what 
The reason why we call it design thinking. As soon as you understand, even intuitively, that something makes sense for people, it makes sense for your company, you start to prototype, to create, to share. And prototyping is so powerful. In the book, I, I talk about different superpowers of prototyping. Uh, imagine that right now I'm talking about a knife. If I just say knife, every single person listening to me right now will visualize a different kind of knife. If I sketch a knife in front of you right now, all of a sudden, we're all aligned around the knife I'm talking about. Now, the people with a marketing background may think that eventually the brand that they put on the blade is not visible enough. The uh, scientists in the room or listening to us right now may think that the blade is not sharp enough or the ergonomists may think that the... Um, that the handle is not comfortable enough. And a lot of people may think, wow, Mauro is such a bad designer. And maybe I am a bad designer. But the reality is that what I'm doing with the sketch is the power of design thinking in action. Essentially, by prototyping very quickly, I'm enabling the cross-functional team around me, the experts around me, to co-create with me. And so the market are telling me that the, blade, the, the brand is not visible enough. I may be like, you know what? You're right. Or maybe I may say, you know what? You're wrong. And this is the reason why you're wrong. And then I start a dialogue, a conversation, and, 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 and we arrive to a final decision, but, you know, together, united, understanding what we're doing, uh, challenging each other. So, this ability to prototype early on, it could be a sketch on a post-it and then it could be a real mock-up and then it could be a prototype that is very close to the final product. And then finally, it could be a prototype in market. In PepsiCo, we have been launching multiple prototypes in market to learn, test and learn, using today the online channel and, and an agile way to produce these ideas, these products. Uh, to learn, to extract learning. And some of them made sense and they started to grow. Some others didn't and we abandoned them. Some others uh, gave us some insights that we've been then using in other products uh, in a very powerful way. Uh, and so this is something extremely important. Power of prototyping, number one, is the power of alignment. When you align everybody, around an idea. Uh, when I say something, how many times I, you say something in a business meeting and everybody's in alignment and then they get out of the room and they all go in different directions because they didn't all understand that idea in the same way. And when you prototype, then finally the people see the same thing. The first power is the superpower of alignment. The second one is the one I just described is the superpower of co-creation with your teammates with the different functions inside the organization, but then you can take it outside. You can go to the store in front of your design center or your business center and put it on shelf and see how people react. And you start to learn from the so-called consumers, the people using your product. So you can put it in front of your customers, the people, you know, the retailer or uh, the people in charge of your distribution, the people uh, commercializing the product for you and you interact with them and you co-create with them. Then there is the power of the shiny object. Essentially, you know, we're all attracted, no matter our titles and position, by 
beautiful, useful, engaging ideas and products and brands and services. And so when you prototype and you put it in front of a business leader that need to take decisions and it needs to decide, you know, there are these CEOs and investors, they, every day there is a line of people asking them for money, for investment in the next initiative, in my next HR project, in my next uh, uh, investment in a plant, you know, in my next initiative. When you arrive there with something that they can touch, they can feel, they can get excited about with what we call a shiny object, that's so powerful. So many times I saw people getting really excited and being like, okay, when can we make it happen? <laughs> Let's make it happen. And so prototyping help you also creating the excitement that unlocks sponsorship, support, investment, and that, you know, accelerate your journey of innovation inside an organization. And finally, all of these build confidence inside uh, a team. Uh, you know, when you innovate, by definition, you're taking risk. By definition, you're doing something that you don't know how it's going to go. And innovation actually often fail. And so often companies are paralyzed by something like this. Prototyping and sharing the idea step by step with a variety of different people within the company, outside of the company, co-creating together, create confidence inside the organization that what you're doing is the right thing to do. Finally, all of this drives efficiency. You move much, much faster in a much more agile way. And finally, quality, because you are tweaking and evolving the product all along the process of the way to market. So this is the power of design-driven innovation. That is nothing else than, once again, human-centered innovation are the same thing. That's what we study at school as designers. And this is not just about designers. This is about every single function. Design thinking is an approach that should be embraced by marketing, by R&D, by finance, by HR, by any single function of an organization that can be applied to any kind of problem that you need to solve. Designers eventually are somehow the ambassadors of this kind of capability and they push it through and they share the methodology and they try to build the right culture. Now, culture is a very important word. And this is what the second part of the book is about. Or, I, or actually, I, wish, I should say almost the entire book, two-thirds of the book is about this. And what I mean is this. For years, you know, for 10 years, I've been building design in uh, PepsiCo. For 10 years before, I've been building design from scratch in 3M. So 20 years of doing that. Before I had my own agency, so building the capability from scratch in the agency you're creating for yourself. And then... Uh, before that, I started in a, in a team in Philips Design. It was very pioneering and visionary and trying to disrupt within the company as well. So all my life, you know, or the other, I've been trying to infuse a new approach to innovation, branding, uh, in the name of human centricity in all the organizations, big and small, that I've been part of. And so at the beginning, I was thinking, wow, you know, Yes, design, design thinking, the design methodologies, the design tools. I'm going to introduce them and I'm going to change these companies. This is how 
uh, I'm going to drive this new, you know, human centricity, this, this new human centered approach to innovation in this company. So here I am. I push these new tools, these new methodologies, and, and we start to run projects, dozens of projects, hundreds of projects. I'm thinking about 20 years ago, the beginning of, you know, my journey in my previous company. And, and then I started to observe that some of these projects were succeeding and they were doing very well in market and some others were failing miserably. Now, obviously there are multiple reasons why a project may fail in market or may succeed, but I started to try to analyze what was happening in all of those projects, what was working, what was not working. And at a certain point I was like, oh, maybe, maybe I need to tweak the methodology. I need to tweak the tools and ways of working. And I, I call in, you know, amazing consultant and the most famous designers in the world and strategists. And, and again, some were working and some were not succeeding and failing. And then I started to think, you know, why? What is the common denominator, you know, to all of these projects? What is the, what is making the difference? And then at a certain point, I came to a realization that is so obvious, you know, today when I talk about this and now that I'm about to tell you this, you're going to be like, of course, come on. And yet it's not yet, it's not that debated and discussed in these companies, you know, uh, as a reason for the success or failure of these projects. And what I'm talking about, the common denominator, the key success factor of anything we do in these companies is people, you, you listening to me right now, people, people, us, people. This is what makes the difference. Is the way we observe reality. Is what we think is important or not in what we're observing. Is the kind of data and learning and insights we can extract from that observation is that we transform those data and insights into something that is actionable. And then in products, in propositions, in business models, in brands, in services, in experiences, is how we test it, how we learn from that testing, how we diverge and we converge, just to name a methodology of design thinking, how we take it to life, how we face all the roadblocks and the difficulties of uh, the transition between idea and innovation. An idea is something, you know, is a great concept and it's so easy to have great ideas. Innovation is when you take that idea, you go through all the process to take it to market, you go to market and you're successful. That's when you talk about innovation. So it means that no matter, you know, all the difficulties that you face, uh, the consumer research that is telling you that you shouldn't do that because people are not familiar with that specific a kind of product or brand, uh, or uh, all the constraints given by the cost of manufacture and investments in new plants, or uh, the time to market, or or even just the cultural organization pushing back on something eventually they're not familiar with. That is the culture of the human being, because it's common to any kind of company. It's just the human being that defends the status quo. By definition, is part of our DNA. Is how we are engineer and wired in our minds. So all of this, if you are able to take your idea through all of this, to tweak it, compromise in the right way, take trade-offs and, 
and eventually better your idea into this process uh, and finally reach to market. That's what innovation is about. To do that is not about process. It's not about tools. You need all of these things, but it's all about people. It's all about your way of thinking, of behaving, of acting. And this is so important. And, and again, when you try to figure out what worked and what didn't in a project, then most of the time we talk about the business variables and the KPIs and, and the product, you know, greatness. And, and, and we don't talk about what enabled all of this and what kind of people were behind those kind of projects and how they were thinking and what kind of mistakes eventually they did in not thinking in the right way. And now we can correct those things in the next project. And, and this is so important. It's so, so, you know, is the key variable between success and failure. Now, some of the, you know, so many years ago, I decided to write down a list of characteristics of these people that make the difference. Um, I wrote it for my HR team, for my recruiters uh, back then in my previous company, uh, so that they could look for the right people out there. With not just the technical skills, not just you know in design, not just their ability to interact with the business world, but also these additional skills that would make the difference. Then these skills became a list that I published for the Design Management Institute Review in an article, in a paper, uh, many years ago, I think something like 12 years ago. And, and then it became a topic of many speeches and articles, and, but mostly, mostly it became a compass for myself and for my teams in understanding how to behave in these companies. And over the years, I started to pressure test some of the skills and, and these abilities. And I, you know, trying to understand if they were making sense, if they didn't. And so uh, today in the book, I, the list that you will find is a list of 24 different skills that define these incredible innovators. I call them the unicorns. Um, and the reason, well, it came out of, this word came out of a conversation a few years ago with my team here in PepsiCo, talking about um, the people who were looking for and how difficult it was to find them. And then somebody at a certain point in, in my leadership team was like, oh my God, are we, we're looking for unicorns. They, they don't exist. And we're like, yeah, probably, probably you're right. They don't exist, but we will never stop looking for them. And, and so that's how we decided to call these people. And then, you know, today, uh, when I talk about unicorns, I clarify that indeed these people don't exist. Somebody that has these 24 characteristics to the extreme does not exist. Uh, Plato would say that the unicorns live in the world of ideas. They live in this world we aspire to and we tend to all our life. And so this is what the unicorns are. You know, you want to be clear about the characteristics you need and you want in your life. And then you spend your life bettering yourself, learning. In the book, I talk about, you know, the idea of being a student of life, a student for life. A student of life, meaning that you see any opportunity in life, every encounter, anything that happened around you 
as an opportunity to learn and study and grow. And then you do it for your entire life. You don't think that, you know, with finishing your study in college, you're done. No, 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 no. Is a continuous learning. And this was true, you know, it should have been true always. You know, this is a universal idea. But today, in a world that keeps moving at the speed of light, where things change so fast, this idea of continuous learning is so, so imperative. If you still want to be relevant and competitive in, in, the, in the business world as a leader uh, in this kind of context. And so this is uh, what really drove the success, for instance, of a capability like the design capability in PepsiCo, starting from uh, essentially myself hired uh, 10 years ago by Indra Nui to build uh, an organization of design uh, with a few people at the very beginning and to them almost 300 and growing people. Today, the 15 and, plus and more design uh, locations around the world and, and the capability that is very integrated in design uh, in, the, in the DNA of the company uh, and is not just about design uh, and designers, but it's all about human centricity embraced by all the different functions inside the organization. So when talking about these unicorns, what are these traits? What are these skills? Well, there are 24, there are many in there. <laughs> I describe them in many pages of the book and we don't have the time now to talk about each of them together. But, you know, some of them, I will mention a few. Some of them are more respected. For instance, the ability to dream, to think big, to um, essentially uh, look at the world before anything else with the wonder of a child, with a kind of excitement. Um, the poet Pascoli that I mentioned in the book um, in the 1800s used to talk about um, il fanciullino, the little child that is in all of us, and that with time and with your growth, with our growth, slowly, incrementally start to disappear. Because society tried to normalize us, because society tried to channel you know, what we do into very standard and universal uh, directions. We need to find ways instead to protect that, the fantasy of the little child and the ability to dream and realize that dreaming is not naive. For many times, uh, especially young adults come into these companies and they want to change the world and they have these great dreams and then they get stopped by the system. So we need to make sure that in our companies we protect that ability to dream. We need to make sure as individuals that we ourselves protect that ability to dream. Now, that's just the first step. I met many people that have been able to keep dreaming, to protect that ability to dream in their life. But then they're not able to land those dreams, to execute them, to transform them in something practical and tangible. And then you just stay in the dream, in the comfort zone of the dream eventually, unable to actualize that dream, to drive value for organizations, for yourself, for the world, and, uh, you know, with your dreams that become reality. 
So the first skill of the unicorn is that unique ability to balance dreaming and thinking big and having a vision with the pragmatism of landing things and making things happen uh, with sense of urgency, with agility, flexibility, and constantly and consistently. Now, if I talk about these two dimensions, a lot of people may think, well, this is great. I completely agree. And I agree also that they're not that common in people, but of course, when you talk about innovation, you talk about these kind of things. And I agree, of course, you talk about these kind of things. Let's just make sure that we put the right people with that kind of ability in the right projects assigned to the right challenges. But there are other characteristics beyond these that I mentioned in the book, in the 24 skills of the unicorns, that are less obvious. I'll mention a few, and again, we don't have the time to go through all of them, but curiosity, kindness, optimism. Let, let, let's think about these three that I just mentioned. Optimism is fundamental. You know, if you try to change the status quo, if you try to change the way your a company works, or if you try to evolve a brand or uh, to innovate a product or to change uh, an organization or the world or a community or anything you're doing. And there is a high chance that if you are a brand leader, a business leader and designer, <laughs> you're doing that. You have to do it because your role is to take something in the status quo and take it to the next level. So if you are in charge of that, first of all, you need to be optimistic by definition because the very idea that you can think that you can take something, something that is in a certain status today, you can make it better, is an optimistic kind of way of thinking. So innovators are optimistic. The non-innovators are the ones that always think, ah, oh, you cannot change that. I mean, this is the status quo. Why do you think you will have ability? You, you. <laughs> <laughs> you have the ability to change this? Come on, come on. Who do you think you are? So the innovator had that naivete of thinking that is possible and they are optimistic. The other reason why you need optimism is that when you drive that change, then you will face roadblocks, shut doors, difficulties of any kind is always like this. I face roadblocks, you know, every day. It's been my life. It's been always like this. And you know, at the very beginning when that happened, I got really annoyed and pissed. But then after a few hours, I just forget about this and I keep going. And, you know, partially is my nature. So optimism could be a natural attribute. And some people are like this. But then you can also practice it. And you can also help yourself in being more optimistic. What I do usually is this. When I face a roadblock, I try to step back and look uh, in perspective. Think about where I'm coming from and where I'm going. Where I'm going is the dream, is the vision I was mentioning earlier. So the dream and the vision are so important because it gives you energy to keep pushing, to you know, go after that idea, you know, just go for it. The ability to look back gives you, you know, that kind of strength that comes from the fact that you understand that you are doing progresses, that there is a progress in your journey. Because when you are there in front of your roadblocks, you're just focused on the difficulty. And you eventually, you don't 
understand, you forget most of the time how much you already did. And even the fact that that roadblock by itself is a way to grow. Even if you don't succeed in a specific moment, you know, with something you're pushing, it's fine. You're learning out of it. Even your journey, your uh, journey of innovation to change the brand, the company, the organization, the culture of your team, even that will benefit out of that roadblock in a way or the other along the way through what you learn, through what your team will learn eventually doing a misstep, doing a mistake, and then realizing later on. So it's all something that is part of the journey. And so when you step back, you see things in perspective, and you get that optimistic uh, reaction that, yes, we are moving forward anyway, and this is just a roadblock, and I will overcome that, and I will leverage what I'm learning out of it to reach my dream, my goal. The other attributes I mentioned is curiosity. You know, curiosity is what drives you uh, to be always hungry for knowing more, for the culture my parents were talking about when I was uh, a kid and still today. Uh, Curiosity pushes you to get out of your comfort zone and engage in conversations with people eventually you don't don't even know that you meet around. Uh, Curiosity pushes you to embrace people that are different than you. Diversity is a wonderful value for the curious people because they understand that in diversity is hidden the precious gift of knowledge because they understand that people that think differently from us can open our minds, can give us different perspective. We can learn so much from them. And from my perspective, perspective number one, combined with your perspective, perspective number two, true Dialogue, true respect, by the way, two attributes, ability to create a dialogue and respect of the unicorns once again. You know, true, you know, this connection between the two perspectives, where there is not one perspective better than the other, you create a third original perspective that is blending the two dimensions. And this is what innovation is about. When you look at something always with the same point of view that is originated by your background, your bias, we all have them. We all have them. They're all originated by our history, where we come from. So engaging in a, with curiosity, in conversation people with people different than us is an unbelievable driver of innovation. Curiosity is what drives you from one meeting room to another meeting room in another city, in your country, or in another part of the world, and instead of just staying there during the business trip and doing your meeting and then rushing back to uh, your city, you get out of the meeting room and you get lost and you bump into people and you start to look at them as an ethnographer and you observe the way they eat, they drink, they communicate, they behave, they dress, uh, they connect with each other, they have fun. And all of this gives you data and insights. We talk always about data and, 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 you know, technology-driven data. And this is so important. But we can't forget our ability to collect data every single day by just observing the reality we're in, in our cities, in our communities, in our neighborhoods, in our companies, but also when we get out of those areas, putting our ethnographer hats 
and 24-7 always learning, learning, learning with our antennas up and our radar ready to capture interesting uh, and relevant and meaningful insights. So curiosity is fundamental. And so when you hire a person to drive a brand, a business, uh, where by definition there is a component of innovation and there is in the most of the cases, ask yourself, is this person a curious person? Because it's not just about the data you buy from an agency or the insights you buy uh, from an external firm, but it's also mostly about you, your know-how, your knowledge, your culture, your understanding of the world, your ability to keep understanding, learning, and observing the world as a curious person. And then kindness. Kindness, well, so many times, you know, we, 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 we are told that kindness is actually a weakness. You know, many people think that kindness is a weakness. And kindness instead is so powerful. You know, my teams in PepsiCo are kind. That's the kind of value that I infuse in those teams. That's the kind of people I look for and I hire inside a company. And you can see that the kindness is an amazing glue, invisible, that create this phenomenal bonds within the team that makes them so efficient, so productive, and they make also their interaction with other teams efficient and productive in a variety of different ways. You know, who wants to go to work, first of all, and be surrounded by people that are not nice to them, that are not kind? Well, I think nobody wants to. And so what happens is that you go to work from nine to five and then you rush back home. You know, you don't want to be around those people. But if you meet people that are nice to you, that are kind, that you love, that you, you know, you can trust, there is a high probability you spend, you're going to spend quality time with them. You're going to have a coffee or a drink or a meal or, you know, spend some additional time. And in that time is when you build those amazing bonds and synergies and connections that then become so incredibly useful and indispensable when you face a challenge in your project, in your company, eventually even in your life. Kindness is a driver of productivity because it makes your team hyper-efficient when the difficulty arrives. So investing in your team and, you know, another component, another characteristic of these uh, amazing innovators is, uh, is the ability to um, have fun together. So kindness connected also with the ability to interact with each other and fun with each other and enjoy the time with each other is fundamental to drive efficiency. Uh, another value of kindness is that if you are kind to your team, there is a high probability that your team will be there to support you, will be there to help you avoiding your blind spots, your uh, eventually, you know, areas uh, the areas in which you may not understand certain things, you know, the moment where eventually because of your background, because of your culture, because of the way you look at things, you are missing something. If you're surrounded by people, 
you're nice to and they're nice to you, there is a high probability they will be there to help you if you're open to them, if you're not arrogant. And this is another characteristic of these individuals, you know, uh, the humbleness combined with kindness, you uh, are going to amplify your ability to be effective individually and as a team, collectively, leveraging the superpower of the team. And so this is a very important characteristic as well. Um, and then finally, kindness, uh, make sure that, you know, when you are in a team, you trust each other, you're connected with each other, and, and trust is a component of kindness. So a lot of people talk just about trust, but, you know, is inside this broader, much broader idea of kindness. You know, there is a high probability that you're going to trust other team members to do what they're supposed to do and not stab you on the back at the first occasion. And this is so important because if you are afraid of other people, if you don't trust them, if you don't, if you think they could, they could be not nice to you, not kind to you, not really, you know, working with you, profiting of your weaknesses at a certain moment, if you believe that, you're going to do a series of actions to protect yourself. All of these actions are redundant and not necessary for the company. And so if you multiply the little actions that every team member does to protect themselves for the hundreds of thousands of people within big companies, you understand the level of hidden inefficiency and lack of productivity that you generate by not having kind people. When we talk about productivity, we often talk about cutting costs and, and managing this cost. And, and this is all important. This is very important. But we should look at kindness as well and the synergy within the teams as an amazing driver of productivity. And we should try to be as strategic and systematic and data-driven as possible in leveraging that aspect of productivity uh, that is totally human-centered. I'll stop here. There are many other characteristics, but you get the sense of what I'm talking about when I talk about these unicorns that drive quality and efficiency and ultimately great effectiveness inside these organizations. I call them the unicorns. They are special people. You need to find them. You can train them. Uh, and the, the train starts, you know, the key values of training are first, building awareness about these qualities. Often we are not aware that optimism is a superpower or that kindness is a superpower, that humbleness is a superpower or the ability to dream is a superpower. So awareness about these characteristics, then starting to practice them and then finally maintain them at the level where you take them because you're never done. You always need to invest in them. And this is really, really important. And you may have part of these characteristics as a natural talent, but there is a component of it that you can absolutely train. And if you are born with more natural talent as a unicorn, if you don't practice them, probably you will be less of a unicorn of somebody that was the started, was born with less of natural talent, but has been consciously with full awareness practicing them all the time. In the book, I talk about about a series of 
mentorship style that could nurture all of this. The idea of the virtual mentor, the mentor that is not close to you, that in this digital world is so important. The idea of the mentor by osmosis, the mentor that is not aware of being a mentor to you and you need to observe and extract as much learning from. The idea of the meta-mentor, a collection of different individuals, each of them having a specific characteristic, the most kind person that you can imagine, the most optimistic person you can imagine, the most a humble person or visionary person or stylish person you can imagine, and each of them together creating this meta-mentor that can guide you in your decisions in life and in your journey. And finally, I close the book talking about how you can apply all of this to your happiness. Happiness defined by human scientists, not by me, as a journey in three steps. The first one is self-expression and self-realization. The job, the work is a component of this express yourself, find your unique approach to anything you do and drive it forward. And this will make you happy. Do what you love and do it every day and express yourself through that. The second dimension is the love that you give to others, usually close people, your family, your close community, your co-workers very close to you. Is You give it to them, not to receive something back, but you receive it back. This is a key component of happiness. We need time to dedicate to our families. Hybrid working is unlocking amazing opportunities for happiness in this dimension. And we can apply that kind of mindset and approach also in our business environment. Love the people surrounding you and you receive the love back. And then the third dimension often comes later in life is the dimension of transcendence. It's something bigger than you. It's a cause, it's a purpose, doing something that is, uh, again, you know, much broader than you and your interest. In my case, in the case of, you know, from a business standpoint, is pushing this idea of human centricity, of design-driven innovation, using PepsiCo as an amazing platform. Thank you, PepsiCo, for letting me do this, to send this message to the world, creating value for the company, of course, but then creating value for society and impacting the life of people through that kind of approach. And then you may have, you know, a similar purpose in life, in everything you do. And so, once again, people in love with people is the key, the core message of this book, The Human Side of Innovation. Uh, the second people in the sentence are the people we want to focus on with this human-centric approach. The first people in the sentence are us, the leaders, the innovators, the change agents, the designers, the marketers, the R&D uh, uh, leaders that are changing these companies. Love synthesized everything I share with you today. People in love with people can change companies, can change brands and businesses, but mostly can change society and create a better world for themselves, for all of us, and for our children and the next generation that will come. Thank you. <laughs>